Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist, with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Philip N. Howard, who is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute and the author of nine books, including Pax Technica, How the Internet of Things May Set Us Free or Lock Us Up. He's a frequent commentator on the impact of technology on political life, contributing to the New York Times, Financial Times, and other media outlets. His latest book is called Lie Machines, How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations, and Political Operatives. It's great to have Philip on the show with us today. This couldn't be more timely, and I'm always excited to also spend time with another Philip. I feel like I very rarely meet Philips nowadays. It's kind of like a classic name that's not as popular as it once was. So thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, it's a treat for me too. <laughs> I mean, I, I finished the book very recently. So this is all like top of mind. And I also think these particular times that we're living in has made these topics even more dramatic in the sense that we've lived through Brexit, we've lived through Trump, we've seen sort of this authoritarian rise throughout the world, even some of these tendencies becoming ingrained in so-called democracies, even the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're living through, I feel has had some elements of the things that you've talked about in the book, these sort of lie machines that exist to not only steer us in one particular direction, but just ultimately to confuse us. Right. And and so I'm, I'm going to not editorialize too much because I have so much to get through. But I think a, a great place to start is just to really explain the title of the book, because lie machines is such a particular way of framing this issue. Well, the reason I refer to lie machines is that I think there's both a social and organizational part to the production of a lie. And then there's the mechanism, the, the technology that delivers it, that puts it in your social media feed, that makes sure you you see it. And I don't think it makes sense to talk about modern politics now without some storyline that involves the social and some storyline that involves the technical side of things. And to be honest, the, the original title for the book was Truth Machines, because when I started off, I wanted to write about how the mechanisms for fact-checking and for producing truths would win or improve civic life or dominate. And over time, it became clear that, that I shouldn't call it truth machines. It really did have to be about lie machines, because most of the mechanism seems to be about promoting falsehoods, fake news, junk. And it's interesting that you made that shift because I think there's a, a certain segment of what I would call like general social theory, thought leadership, that is very techno-utopian in its perspective, in that it will make the argument that, yes, they are downsides, but by and large, technology has improved technology. And when I say technology broadly, I also mean social media and mechanisms have improved our world. And it, and it sounds like 
you looked at things initially through that lens, but then came to a different conclusion. So kind of walk me through that a a little bit more. I, I think that's fair, but I would count myself in the group of technology optimists. I don't think I'm a utopian. It's not going to save everything. Right, and technology is not going to save uh, save us. They can be used to improve our lives. And even having finished this project, I still think that democracy advocates tend to be more creative and more desperate than most dictators or most authoritarian leaders. They tend to do more creative things. So I think we're at a moment in time where dictators, white supremacists, far-right, ultra-conservatives have figured out how to use these technologies for social control. There's a little bit of that on the far left, but it really is much more um, extreme right. I think it's a temporary advantage. So I don't think we're destined to have a public life that's dominated by tech-savvy dictators. And it's interesting because I remember, you know, my, my life's kind of separated into these milestones, right? Like, I guess everyone's life is, but there's certain moments that I have crystallized sort of breaks from one state of being to another state of being. And when I think about when Obama won in 2008, there were so many articles across a wide variety of publications, print and online, that were optimistic, not only on his presidency, the promise of his presidency, but on the idea of how he won. There were these huge research about how they they finally harnessed technology in a way to activate young and progressive voters and build this new coalition and completely outsmarted and outthought Republicans at that time mm-hmm. and had a insurmountable advantage that would make the Republican Party obsolete. Mm-hmm. And eight years later, <laughs> right. we're kind yeah. of telling a dramatically different story. Like, what do you think about the way in which we've seen this shift where, as you said, the emphasis now, I would say, beyond just my politics, is squarely advantage conservative right wing (laughs) authoritarian rather Mm -hmm. than what it seemed we were leaning toward in that 2008 window? The first thing I'd offer is that almost every presidential race seems like it's full of firsts. So before Obama, many people were excited about about Gore having done creative things with technology that hadn't been done before that. And before that, McCain in 1999 raised more money from you know $100 donations than anybody prior using the internet. It's not uncommon that we look at political leaders, especially at the national stage, and look to the, the milestones. And Obama gets credit for having developed network social media applications in a significant way to, to help build local network structures that no other candidate had in place, both when facing off against Hillary and then running for the presidency. I think one of the things that's one of the dynamics of Republican and national technology politics is that the Republicans, and particularly conservatives, tend to be less afraid to do things that will violate privacy norms or might risk upsetting people. So it's Republican, it was uh, Ronald Reagan who developed direct mail campaign. You remember, uh, you know, I know you're at least 20 years younger than I am, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a time when we all hated getting direct mail, right? This yeah. direct mail, that, that was the spam that really bugged everybody because it just came in through the door. And that was a Republican innovation. So after Reagan 
pioneered the art of direct mail. There were a series of um, Republican candidates for president and prominent political communications staffers who did all this innovative stuff with, with data mining, with taking credit card records and making political inferences from credit card records. Uh, a lot of that innovation, technology innovation, tends to happen on the conservative side of the spectrum. Um, there's research that shows that re Republican, more conservative websites are more likely to be designed to keep a user on site. They don't build off links that let people go exploring. Democrats and left-leaning parties tend to provide citations to the New York Times or citations to the news uh, so that you can go explore things. Uh, so there's a different structure. And, and then I think most recently we saw the Trump campaign be much more aggressive with manipulative, angry, hot-button, polarizing messages, messages that were, you know, for targeting Hillary Clinton that were sexist, a lot of race-baiting uh, race choices of words, images. These things are much more prevalent on for right-wing, ultra-conservative candidates than they are for the other side of the spectrum. One of the things that, I mean, a lot of the things really struck me in the book, and one of them is just the really the complex nature of how these these lie machines operate. And I want to give you space to explain just a little bit of, of how they, it's not just the the creation of the meme or creation of the video. It's it's so much more convoluted and complex than that. And mm -hmm. as someone who is a news person, I'm a political person, I'm a social person. And I still was like, fuck <laughs> for a less eloquent way of putting it. So I, I want to leave room for you to kind of navigate us through just how complex these lie machines are. They can be. Well, the biggest and the smallest of the lie machines that are in the book anyway, and I think we still suffer under, have a production side and a distribution side and a marketing side. And the, the production side usually involves a team of people who come up with a lie or make a linkage that isn't there, and they, they sort of craft the message. The distribution side usually involves taking advantage of social media algorithms or Google search, you know, figuring out the SEO, the search engine optimization strategy that will get the bit of misinformation to the right people who are most likely to believe it. And then there's a sort of a follow-on marketing aspect to this, which involves these other agencies that package store, uh, ridiculous lies into one big structure. And, you know, some of the most unfortunate, biggest lies we've seen in politics are now are around COVID, right? COVID misinformation that connects uh, the anti-vax movement, which goes back, you know, decades, frankly, with a modern fear of Bill Gates, with the idea that the government is trying to inject something in us, which, you know, that also goes back for decades, with the modern coronavirus, with the uh, racism and fear of China, and Chinese people, it's one massive linked story about trying to get us to not do social distancing and protest governors who are putting in public health measures. Right, so the mechanism can be quite big. And like you said, it's pretty complex. And you know, what makes it so nuanced is this process of A-B testing ads, right? So if I can use some data about you, about your history, your background, you're born and made in Brooklyn, that might tell me something about your political values. If I can infer what kind of face you'll respond to or what kind of voice you'll respond to, and if I can generate that content 
and test it quickly on people around you or your friends and family, then the ad that gets to your your screen is the one that you're most likely to respond to, right? And that's that's the ultimate goal, uh, trying to produce ads that'll trigger you to behave in certain ways. And you make this distinction several times in, in the book between junk news and what is now popularly part of the lexicon of fake news, right? Which unfortunately has been now adopted to be used by everybody, right? Which is, makes it an extra annoying term. And so I was happy to see that you made a, a distinction there. So how do you classify that distinction? So the reason I switched to that term is simply that it's too hard to fact check every story to know what is fake news and what is not. And it's too hard to audit a news organization's process. There are professional news agencies that have full-time employed fact checkers. And their job is simply to double check everything that gets published before it gets published and not after. And then there are other news organizations that don't use very much fact checking and don't have professional norms. But you can't look at any particular story. It's very hard for a researcher to look at any particular news story and figure out how much fact checking went into that production of that story. And the other thing that's changed over time, even since the book was written, is that the misinformation is so much more subtle, right? It's not always about totally made up lies with fake pictures that have been faked. It's subtle messaging and asking the question, did the Wuhan virus originate in Wuhan or in a lab in Texas? That as a question, it's a non sequitur, right? And it's not a story and there's no lab. It didn't come from a lab in Texas. But if the Chinese media, stakeback media outlet, asks that question in a news story and has 10,000 bots forward it and repeat it across Twitter and into other social media platforms, then it becomes something that it shouldn't be, right? It becomes, it gets momentum behind it. And so much of the misinformation now is very subtle. What you or I might call opinion, opinion writing, commentary writing, but it's in the New York Times font or it's got the BBC colors and you know, pay attention, you might end up on one of these sites that just looks like trustworthy news organization. I love that you brought up trust, right? Or the word trustworthy has come up. And I wonder a couple of things that I think are kind of tied to our general social structure, because, you know, here we are in 2020, right? We've had a situation of what I was called the amplification of this idea of misinformation and junk news you know, fueled through technology. But I'm wondering if some of this, and this is kind of my chicken versus egg um, hypothesis, that have we been primed for this moment for a really long time by two things, at least two things, not only these two things, Mm -hmm. but one is sort of this attack on our institutions. You know, I would argue primarily led by conservatives, right? This idea of the left-wing media and Hollywood controls everything, right? I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but you know what I'm saying. Coupled with a general low education environment, right? Like, I, I think we've made this argument, and, and at least here in the United States, of experts suck. We don't care what, like, these liberal know-it-alls have to say in their ivory towers, you know, talking down to us, like all this kind of stuff where there's this sort of, you know, I feel like a lot of this stuff thrives because people don't know how to smoke it out. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. I think 
and you know embedded in your what you're saying there is the, is the idea that higher education has largely failed i think to teach critical thinking skills and critical thinking skills those are not oh i distrust everything i see or they're all lying or there's a conspiracy to get me and i think you know what now when we talk about a lot of governments we talk about evidence-based policy making and the very idea that we need a term evidence-based policy making is inane right there shouldn't be there's no such thing as non evidence there shouldn't be any non-evidence based or evidence-based non-policy making so so i i agree we're sort of we're sort of stuck i think the the real downside to this flood of misinformation is that it's it's encouraged people to look for conspiracies right and you're right we've been primed for it in that social media is not facebook as platform instagram as a platform they're not designed to promote consensus or look for common points of agreement and push that content up right they're designed the, the algorithms behind pushing content from our friends and family are designed to look for the controversy the titles in all capital letters with lots of exclamation marks and things that are going to be divisive or sensational or extremist clickbait right that's that's what that's what these many of these systems feed off and so we have been primed for a long time because that's how much so much other kinds of advertising works now i think the question is can we get the social media platforms just to do enough of a redesign to be able to promote to, to help us look for consensus and points of agreement and you know there's also a lot of research that shows when you get a bunch of people together who think might disagree but if you put them together for a week to talk about some serious public policy issues with experts and they can do their own research and they they usually end up with consensus and the, the far lefty understands a little bit more about the middle of the road and the middle road understands the extremes and the far conservative ultra conservative isn't as conservative anymore but that's social media doesn't set up those kinds of encounters that's not what social media is for but it, it seems like the marketing initially for social media told a different story, right? Facebook was the new town square, right? It was the global town square that would allow us to would meet. meet and connect and, and bring the world together. But now clearly that notion has become weaponized. Why do you think, even in the face of tremendous evidence of your work and you know other scholars around the world that are studying these issues, that they are so resistant to tell a different story, so to speak. And not just Facebook. It could be any social media platform, but I think Facebook is the one that we have seen this acted out on yeah. primarily. Yeah, it's the one where we we suspected this would happen. Some of us started calling it out as it started happening, or uh, you know, and then it really did happen. It really did drive some things into the ground. I think, you know, there's big money at play here. Uh, so part of it you know, to actually redesign Facebook to promote consensus would be such a, it'd be a significant redesign, right? It would take a lot of resources and a lot of fresh thinking, which at this point, Facebook is, a, it's not a startup anymore, right? It's a, it's a big company with significant investors and uh, generating a lot of money. It's a kind of infrastructure for public life. And I think in many ways, it generates an enormous amount of data about public life that isn't in the public realm, right? That everything you can learn all the good data that Facebook collects doesn't sit in the Library of Congress. It doesn't doesn't go to the researchers and the medical researchers and, the, and to work on it. it. Goes to private clouds. Facebook's own infrastructure has that best information on public life. 
So I think part of the problem is that Facebook doesn't have an incentive to change too much. There's been some important changes, I would say, that are more than cosmetic, but they're also not too deep, right? So around COVID misinformation, Facebook has done some, uh, has moved more aggressively to try to drum COVID, the, the myths that actually kill people, expose people to COVID. Those, they've tried good effort, I think, to, to try to control those. Twitter is now calling out, uh, isn't labeling some of Trump's tweets, some of that content. So the firms are doing a little bit more. I think it's, a, it's an open question whether they'll continue to be that diligent as we go into the 2020 election and whether they'll be continue to be diligent on other issues, not COVID issues, but other kind of political issues. And I'm actually not so sure. I'm not so sure what the firms will. I can't guess at what the firms will do, how responsive they'll be when it comes to the next election. And I want to tack back a little bit to that chicken and egg concept, which less about the history. I, I had the opportunity to interview a couple of times, um, Timothy Snyder, who's a professor at Yale, historian. Right. And we jokingly had a conversation late last year, but it aired this year. And part of what we were talking about was not so much these lie machines, but generally what helps authoritarians, right? Like, because he's, he's studied that a lot and that's his area of expertise as a historian. And, you know, I kind of flippantly said like, you know, wouldn't books help? Like, don't books help us, like, get past some of this stuff? And when I see the more extreme examples, whether they're in in your book or just around the internet, what strikes me is that to a certain extent, I feel like if people are f- kind of predisposed to leaning into these ideas, the more misogynistic, the more racist ideas, they kind of had a baseline for these ideas to begin with, right? Like... If you believe that, you know, Hillary Clinton is involved in Pizzagate and all these kind of things, you probably also believed in Whitewater in the 90s, right? And that the Clintons have murdered tons of people, you know, all that stuff, right? So you were probably in line (laughs) to, to kind of be susceptible to this kind of stuff. So how do you deal with sort of the baseline frailties or, or fault lines that exist in society that has misogyny and religious intolerance and racial intolerance? Like, how do we fix some of those things? Because it seems like these lie machines thrive in that. Absolutely. I think they do thrive in that. I do think that you can build, you know, back to the original title, you should be able to build truth machines or civility machines or, you know, I don't know keep it to yourself machines because uh, you're absolutely right. There will be racism and sexism embedded in people for a long time to come, but social media, social, well, you're an anthropologist, social media socializes people, right? It's, it's a mode of socializing. It's a way of introducing cues and rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. It's a signaling system And if you build a signaling system to reward polarizing outrageous comments and photos that have actually been made up and the most ridiculous stories that maybe have a few truths but are lead you to some crazy conclusion, that's the stuff people will believe in and consume and parrot and replicate. So I think, you know, in a funny way, the answer isn't to take away social media and only use books. I would say, yes, we should only be reading more books for lots of good reasons, but but more social media can also have that socializing role 
And structurally speaking, if we can find ways to curtail how far white supremacist neo-Nazi propaganda flows, then structurally for society as a whole, we'll be healthier, we'll be better off. Now, in some countries, particularly in the U.S., that is a real threat to political identity uh, for political speech. The U.S. is a unique democracy in that way. In most democracies around the world, lies don't have free speech protections. And I think even in the U.S., many constitution experts would say that a political lie does not have any speech protections. But currently, it's hard to imagine how a social media firm or a government would effectively discourage the nastiest of lies from spreading on social media without some intervention, right? Basically some informed censorship or some informed surveillance and some informed decisions about what to, what content should stay and what content shouldn't be circulating. And this is global. You know, like it, that's one thing that is highlighted in the book. There's tons of examples where this is happening everywhere. And clearly, especially in American narrative, you know, Russia has been a, a huge focus here to the point where I was not skeptical, but I always fell, fell down on issues like this. One, they're exploiting things that are already here in, in the sense of people were like, oh, they're sending like misleading information about Hillary Clinton and the crime bill and super predators and separating like black people from white people and kind of start, you know, targeting black people not to vote and all these different things that have been cited, not just in the book, but in other places. Right. And I was like, well, you can only do that if those things existed in the first place. Right. Like if you, if, if there is a root place of distrust or voter suppression or, you know, like Hillary Clinton did make the speech, right? Like, of course we can properly historically contextualize that speech and analyze that speech and people can be allowed to change. So I'm not going to, you know, re-debate that thing, but the weaponization of it can only happen in all of this sea, right? <laughs> so being that this is so global, how are these organizations so adept at kind of identifying those, those weak points in order to effectively exploit them? Yeah. Exploit them? yeah. I think... Uh, Anybody who studies politics a little bit will figure out what the hot button issues are for a Democrat or a Republican. I'm Canadian, so it doesn't take a lot for an outsider to figure out what a liberal or a conservative would stand for or somebody from the New Democratic Party what would get them mad. And once you have a list of those, those hot button issues, if you put millions of dollars into advertising in ways that will really make the conservatives angry and really make the liberals angry, then that's what, that is the campaign that triggers the anger and polarization and a breakdown in civic life. So one of the limits of our understanding of this is that we actually don't know, we can't make a statistical model of how a tweet will impact a voter. We can't say, oh, tweet this many times about Black Lives Matter and you'll make everybody into Black Lives Matter supporters. Those, those models don't exist. But we do know that the Russians in particular and Trump-related misinformation was targeted in swing states in 2016. So the junk news, fake news, the audience for fake news wasn't the entire country. It was Michigan, Ohio, Florida. It was, it was a selection of states. Most, most people don't read that stuff. 
there's only particular voters that do. And you're right, it's voters who are undecided and might have some some inclination to go for that those extreme messages. But the better evidence, I think, of intervention are these moments where the Russians were able to direct a Black Lives Matter protest to a particular street corner and then direct a Blue Lives Matter protest to the opposite street corner at the same point, you know, on the same weekend in the same town. So, you know, they're setting up conflict. They purposely were able to to set up a violent conflict. And that's a good example of what can be done with these systems. Now, increasingly, we're able to catch those kinds of efforts. The security services in the U.S., they're much more tuned into what the, the Russian, the security services are much more tuned into what the Russians are doing. It's not clear to me that the political leadership in the U.S., actually cares that much about protecting American voters against Russian intervention. But that would be my editorial comment. Editorial comments are completely allowed. (laughs) We invite them and welcome them. (laughs) I also started to think about kind of the social technical systems that are described through lie machines and probably the internet in general, because it it got me thinking about this, this notion of feeling like we are agents of this system, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm clicking on what I want to click on, like, you know, kind of the biases that I can sift through all of this information. Does that perception of autonomy play Mm -hmm. into these lie machines at all? Well, I think we often feel in control of the technologies immediately around us, right? We turn on our laptops or we, we turn on the mobile phone and we have a look at what's in our feed. But we don't always appreciate the algorithms behind the content delivery mechanism that gets certain kinds of articles into our feed. So you don't see on Facebook, you don't see everything that your entire social network produces. An algorithm sorts and produce, gives you some selection of subset of that content. Similarly, when I buy things on my credit cards, that information, the stuff I buy, and the stuff I buy is useful politically to somebody. I mean, the milk lobby wants to see, know about my milk purchases and the, you know, coffee lobby wants to, and there is a coffee lobby and there's a milk lobby, right? So it's not, it's not totally a joke. This data is useful for somebody, for something. And we don't appreciate how far it goes and who ha- we don't even know who has it. And we don't know who buys it and sells it and uh, approaching 15. So there's, I would say 45 plus years worth of data about me that I, I have no way of tracking down where it is or who has it then I can't turn the collection process off, right? So it's, it actually would not be, it would be very difficult for me to not have a credit card, stop using, I couldn't work without social media really. And the technology is here, but all that behavioral data gets scooped up and put somewhere and sold and resold to other political actors. So there's a significant amount of, well, mechanism behind us, behind all the content we experience that we have only just a little inkling of how it actually works. And that kind of leads me to another another thing that kind of jumped out is this, just the idea of data just in general, right? Like you highlight data leaks that have happened at credit agencies and, you know, credit card companies that have an enormous amount of data and, and it gets leaked through a lot of issues, you know, poor security, general malfeasance, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Unhappy employees. Yeah. Yeah. And we seem Mm -hmm. to shrug it off, but this is all incredibly valuable 
stuff, maybe not taken in a microcosm of transaction, but once one starts to really look at it as a whole, like, why do we not see the same outrage or concern against MasterCard or Visa or, you know, credit agencies that just allow this stuff to just go into the ether? Go into the ether. Well, yeah, I think think you're absolutely right. It's, I do think this data is one of the most important means of expressing ourselves politically. It mediates our citizenship. It represents us as citizens in important ways. We vote for president every four years or you know, prime minister every five or six years, depending on your country. There may be midterm elections, but not everybody votes in those. We only express ourselves politically through voting every few years, whereas the data we generate on a day-to-day basis about our behavior and who we're spending time with and, and you know where which protests we're at on which street corners all that stuff gets aggregated on a daily basis and can be used and interpreted now we also don't want to oversell it so it's there's a lot of data about our behavior that doesn't get used but even there i would say the important point is that that good data isn't available to you it's still with Facebook, Google, and Microsoft in Silicon Valley. It's not with the Library of Congress. And, you know, I think a lot of us would share our health data with medical researchers if we thought it would help with COVID research, but we don't even have that option. The technology doesn't allow us to contribute civically that way. And I think we need to build in those systems. One of the things that I also started thinking about, because again, Russia comes up a lot, so I'm I'm gonna spend more time banging on them than I would in my in my normal life, because one of the things that and this is a little bit of my editorial that will lead into a question that has annoyed me, is that despite Russia being so serious, that people have sort of intensified, like every disagreement now becomes you're a Russian bot or you're a propaganda for Putin, and so people mm-hmm. can't even really have a discussion because any disagreement becomes you're doing the work of Russia. Right. But I will lean on them in this moment and ask basically about this idea of strategy that, you know, at the end of the Cold War, it was sort of like America won. Right. And we were entering into this new Pax Americana and Russia was no longer relevant. And it seems like they have utilized their capability in lie machines to ultimately kind of maintain a relevance that is not dependent on those traditional military and and kind of things. Like, is that a a reasonable construct to start to think about this? Yeah, I think that's a good way of, a good way of analyzing things. You know, the Russians, their military advantage, they're militarily strong, but they're also very bold when it comes to information operations and they're quite good at them. And I think they're sort of, high risk, high payoff ventures that they take a lot less R&D money than new tank systems and new planes. Um, but if you can make your enemy, especially if, if you're trying to, if your enemy is a democracy, right? If you're trying to choke a democracy, the thing to do is to sow confusion and discord, make people argue with each other and, or get voters to pick politicians who are not very smart and who don't believe in evidence, right? That's the real thing. If you can get on an electorate to choose a politician who would rather go with their guts on key issues than listen to experts, or who doesn't actually understand even the mechanisms of government, or to choose leaders who will say things to undermine the electoral process itself, right? Those kinds of things 
those are wins if you're an outsider and you're trying to topple that democracy. And of the things I'm worried about for November, you know, when political leaders say that they don't trust the outcome of their own country's elections, that's the dangerous stuff. And and voter and discouraging, I think you mentioned this earlier, discouraging voters, certain types of voters from showing up on election day, that's the leaders of democracies should not be doing that. They should be punished. I, I know we're we're running on time. So I want to give an opportunity before we get to like real quick off the dome and the drop. I want to give an opportunity for you to kind of give us, you know, because you originally said the book could have been called Truth Machines, right? So I don't want to make it seem like this is the end and it's all doom and gloom. What are like maybe one or two things that we could do to, you know, insulate ourselves or protect our thought processes from lie machines? I think the one of the basic things to do, we can all do, is clean our social media follower lists and our following lists and remove the people you don't recognize anymore. I think we've all got bots. If we're on Twitter, we've got bots, but you know, try to clean them out. And don't share stuff that you haven't read yourself. Yeah, that's, a, that's a basic step. There's some information, personal information hygiene, things like that. Now, I'm not saying cut out the crazy uncle who sends you stuff that, you know, you shouldn't be circulating because because the worst thing to happen in the in the US would be if if Republicans and Democrats started unfriending each other in significant ways because of politics. That that really would be another structurally bad thing. So I'm not saying cut out cut off people you disagree with, but track your own social media feeds. Don't share stuff that isn't you haven't actually proofed. And then there's some healthy things you can do, like once in a while, check a conservative newspaper, if you're a liberal, or if you're a conservative, once in a while. Have a look at a mainstream news site or a, a liberal news show just to see what, what they're talking about. Because, you know, we all need meat and vegetables, or we need protein and vegetables in our diet. And it's the same thing with news and information. You get a couple of, one source that's good on international news, one source that's good on, that's a slightly liberal, one that's slightly conservative, and that's, that makes for a diverse media diet. Okay, that's fair enough. I, I struggle with that, I must admit. And so, read books. And, and read more books. I mean, I think that's that's I'm, definitely part of it. I'm a big fan of reading more books. I'm gonna I'm gonna breeze us through these off the dome questions, all right? Just in yeah. interest of time. And I, I kind of frame this first one terribly, <laughs> given that we're trying to leave on a on a good note. But which dystopia are we currently closest to? Handmaid's Tale, <laughs> The Walking Dead, or Black Mirror? Um I will say Handmaid's Tale. Black Mirror has so many ones, right? And some of them are so, so off the rail. I would say Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Okay. Do I have to explain why or do I just need to give the answer? No, we just give a quick answer. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Okay. Now, you're building your Avengers team that's going to confront the reality of lie machines. Who is the one person from history that you would want on your team to help deal with this new reality of lie machines? Okay. I got a super geeky answer. I'm going to say Aristotle. Do I get to say why? Yeah. For Aristotle, that deserves a why. <laughs> yeah, so, so Aristotle was the guy, was one of the figures who came up with the argumentative fallacies you know, when you insult someone, somebody says, oh, that's an that's argumentum ad hominem. That's an ad hominem attack, you know, personal attack. So he, he came up with this, all these standards for what is an illogical, irrational, non sequitur, things, statements that don't make sense. 
he came up with lists of these things that should not be appearing in sensible arguments. It's the foundation for a lot of modern science and evidence and our perception of reality. I'd bring him back because I think if if we could redo higher education and get people to be aware of you know, how a personal attack isn't a useful political argument, then that would solve a lot of our problems. Right? Right? If we could read these commentary essays and say, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense, and that's an, that doesn't make sense, we'd get closer to those truths. Okay. And I'm going to answer this other one real quick, because we've been talking a lot about social media and lie machines exist within that frame, but social media also has a lot of good things. If you have to choose between living the rest of your life without social media or without AC and heat, which one are you choosing? I would choose social media. Social media gets the, gets the jump, gets the bump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't want to give up heat or air conditioning. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so the last segment of the show is called a drop, mm. where we give a recommendation, something that our listeners should check out or read. It can be anything at all. I give a drop. I ask my guests to give a drop. So what's your drop for our listeners? I have some of things to read. Oh, it could be anything. It could be anything. So I'm watching Babylon Berlin right now, German TV show about the years just before World War II. And it is dark hopeful and a little steampunk and it's perfect binge perfect binge content i don't speak german so i gotta get used to the subtitles but it's gorgeous it's worth worth spending time with i I definitely agree with babylon berlin i've watched the first two seasons i'm saving the third season i love that show it's one of my best i'm I'm also going to give a show for my drop i don't think i've given this before but rami season two came out it's a hulu show here in the u.s So I'm not sure where it would stream globally, but in my estimation, it's the best show among my recent memory of shows. Yeah, season two just came out a few weeks ago and it is just, I just love it. I don't want to say too much about it, but it's this beautiful show. Guy's a comedian, but it's, it's a dark comedy, but it's about life and people. And I think about it all the time, even weeks after I've, I've watched it. So Rami is my drop. So This has been great. I appreciate you being on the show. Great conversation. And check out Lime Machines. It's been a pleasure having Philip and Howard join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.